Welcome to Season 2 of Fracktown Gumshoe, Holy Fits, based on the novels by Deborah Gaskill. Chapter 13 The sun was just coming up over the hayfields at St. Matilda's when I handed Slocum his fast food breakfast. You got a cell phone, right? Slocum bit deep into his breakfast sandwich and nodded, patting his pocket on his flannel shirt. He wasn't a bad roommate for somebody who didn't have a choice in the matter. He didn't try to leave in the middle of the night, as I half expected. I slept on the couch and had the home alarm set if he tried. When he showered, he cleaned up the bathroom without being told. You call me if you run into any problems. I'll pick you up when the day is over, and we'll debrief about what occurred today. I need every detail you can get, whether you think it's important or not, got it? You detour from anything other than that, and I go straight to the prosecutor with the video, you hear me? Right now, I had no idea what I was going to do with the information, but Slocum could still provide something valuable. You just never knew. Slocum nodded and slipped out of the excursion. I watched him walk up the Abbey's dusty drive and drove off. Back in town, I parked in front of my office. It was only a little after seven, too early for Mary Margaret. I could get settled in, get a pot of coffee started and get something done before her idiot Good morning, Mr. Fitzhugh, chirped into my brain. I shuddered at the thought as I slipped the key into the lock. Before I had to hire somebody, I liked this part of the day. There was something about being able to gather my thoughts, maybe do a little planning as the sun came up and the office filled with the smell of Java that made me feel like I was in control, however slightly, with my world. I flipped on the lights and locked the door behind me, savoring the silence. I filled the coffee maker with real coffee, not the flavored frou-frou crap that Mary Margaret insisted on making at least once a week, but the dark, thick, scraped-off-the-bottom-of-the-river brew that would make me awake for two days straight. As the aroma filled my office, I punched the phone to check the voicemail, and glad, for once, to get there before Mary Margaret's teeth grinding, Good morning, Mr. Fitzgerald, ruined my day. You have one message. Please press one for new message, the electronic voice intoned. Only one? Good morning, Mr. Fitzgerald. Mary Margaret's voice squeaked. I'm not going to be able to make it in this morning. I got some things to do, including a doctor's appointment. So if it runs long, I might be out for the day. Miss Fitzhugh, I mean, Dr. Darcy said I had sick days with this job, so I'd like to use one of them, if that's okay with you. I've already been in the office and checked the voicemail. The messages are on your desk. Gracie told her she had sick days? Shit, I didn't know that. It would be worth paying them, though, if I had her out of my hair for a day or so. I rifled through the messages. A couple questions on billing. I'd let her answer when she got back. A few requests for my services from the divorce attorneys in town. Nothing I couldn't handle on my own. The coffee pot beeped and I stepped over to pour myself a cup. This might be a good day after all. If Mary Margaret was out of my hair, I could spend time trying to figure out how to get Eileen O'Connor out of the Abbey and what the hell to do about Fiona, who was looking like more of a danger than anything else. The sound of a form forceful knock brought me out of my reverie. A man with impeccably cut gray hair stood on the other side of the door. His blue eyes were clear and hard. They probably could have cut through the glass of my office door if he wanted them to. 
and his clean-shaven, craggy face looked like he scaled Mount Everest last weekend for a lack of something better to do. He wore navy pants, white shirt and tie, the expensive kind that upgraded him to the GQ cover. He looked like the kind of guy who made women drop their panties at a moment's notice and the reason that hairy little wops like me never got a date. No doubt, before he came to lean on my office door, he was in the corner of some exotic bar surrounded by gorgeous women saying things like, Stay thirsty, my friend. My jeans smell like the cat food that I dribbled on the floor this morning and I slept in my shirt. We don't open till eight, I called from the back office. Pretty face pulled out his badge and pressed it against the glass. Mr. Fitzhugh, I'm SAC Bill Reisner, FBI, open the door. Fuck. I pasted a smile on my face in a few steps, unlocked the door and let him in. You're earlier than I thought. I tried to sound pleasant. Pittsburgh was about an hour and a half from Fawcettville, maybe two depending on traffic. Reisner probably left home before the sun came up. Reisner shoved his badge in his jacket pocket and walked straight to the coffee maker. He picked up one of the stray cups I used for clients and filled it up. Make yourself at home, asshole. I thought this might be a better time to catch you alone. Today it is. I crossed my arms defensively. Have you been in contact with Agent Rafferty? Today? Not yet. Last night's conversation didn't end well, and she left, pretty pissed off at me. Reisner knit his gray eyebrows together. What happened? I filled him in on the gist of the conversation, ending with a slap. She told me that she checked in with you every day, and that you knew she was coming here, I said. Reisner shook his head. That's not the case at all. As I told you on the phone, Agent Rafferty immediately put in for vacation time after receiving a mysterious phone call. Another agent went to her house that evening and found her gone. I've not heard from her or seen her since. It was your phone call that tipped us off to her whereabouts. My assistant called the Pittsburgh FBI office as part of a research into Benedict St. Giles or Kovach or whatever name he's going by. I'm willing to bet the phone call somehow went to Rafferty's phone. She just showed up here out of the blue. And that surprised you? Hell yes, it surprised me. I haven't seen Fiona Linane since she left the Fawcettville PD 20 years ago. You could have knocked me over with a feather when she showed up here. Then she told me the story about how her husband was killed. Wow. It's always hard to lose an agent like Mark Rafferty. He was one of the best, and together with his wife, they were responsible for clearing a hell of a lot of cases. They were both driven individuals, professionally and personally. When Mark was killed, we tried on multiple occasions to get Fiona into counseling and to take some time off. She went to a few sessions, but stopped fairly quickly and didn't take more than the weekend of his funeral off. She always had a chip on her shoulder about being a female agent. Despite the growing number of female agents in the field, she was always a little touchy about it. That goes way back. She was touchy about being female back in the FPD. We argued about it on more than one occasion. There were also a few instances where we questioned her judgment on suspects, so we pulled her out of the field to work financial crimes. What do you mean? She was taking personal risks she shouldn't have. On more than one occasion, she got physical with a former member of Kovach's cult when it wasn't called for. I grimaced. I know from experience Fiona can kick some serious ass when she wants to. Reisner smirked. That's still true. By the way, I looked into her claim that she was on the Cleveland hostage rescue team. And? Reisner shook his head again. Untrue. Although my information tells me she tried out a couple times. I don't know the reason why she didn't make it. 
Agent Rafferty spent five years at the Akron PD and then moved on to Cleveland, where she worked her way up from patrol to missing persons and property crimes. She was there for five years before coming to us. What do you think she's trying to do? Frankly, Mr. Fitzhugh, I think she wants to kill Jeff Kovach and doesn't care who she drags along with her to get it done. Especially if it was me. I sighed. Something else you should know. At the scene of Mark Rafferty's death, there was some ballistics evidence that was a little questionable. What do you mean? The bullet that killed Mark Rafferty might not have come from Kovach's gun. Whose gun could it come from? Reisner was silent for a moment. We're not sure. It's not often this happens, but when it does, as you know from your own background in law enforcement, it's usually a bullet that's been obliterated for one reason or another. The shooting happened in a small room in a stone cathedral. There's a chance that Kovach didn't kill Mark, but we can't prove it. And even if we lost one of our own, we don't want to put the wrong man behind bars. It's part of the reason we've been looking for him for so long. We want to put this whole situation to bed. I whistled low. Fiona could have accidentally killed her own husband. One shot in her rookie year saved my ass. But 20 years later in another shootout, she accidentally kills her husband? That doesn't make sense. Not from the Fiona I knew. I got the impression she loved the guy. Really loved the guy. We don't know. We can't say one way or the other, but there's been whispering from other agents regarding the shooting and Fiona's been more than a little touchy about it. I'm sure you know how quickly rumors can travel through the rank and file and how those things, verified or not, can end up affecting officer performance. Yeah, I kind of do. Fiona Rafferty was a top agent, one of the best, but I think the whispering was getting to her. We think the fact that she refused to take time off speaks to the possibility that she wouldn't want anyone snooping through her files or looking into her husband's shooting if she wasn't around to control the outcome. She claims she didn't want Mark's name sullied in any way. But sometimes I have my doubts. There's a possibility that she could be covering something up, like the truth of what happened that day in Indianapolis. We certainly want Kovach for the financial fraud he's committed, but he's also the only one who can tell us if he shot Mark Rafferty or not. It's another reason to find her and get her back to Pittsburgh. Reisner shrugged. Additionally, I think she's got some mental health problems. You would too if you accidentally shot someone you loved. I nodded in agreement. Reisner changed the subject. Do you know where Fiona's staying? There's a hotel just a couple blocks from here. She said she got a room there. I'll go make contact with her. I should be able to convince her to head back home, one way or another. What about St. Giles? I would be more worried about the man you dropped off there this morning. How did you know? Bastard's been watching me, probably since I got off the phone with him last night. Fucker was probably sitting in the corner of my house when he called me back last night. I put agents out there to watch the place. He won't go anywhere without us knowing about it. What about Eileen O'Connor? We'll do everything we possibly can to keep her safe, but we can make no promises. Our concern, first and foremost, is capturing Jeff Kovach and getting to the bottom of Mark Rafferty's death, whether his wife likes it or not. And what about my case? What about your case? You should have convinced your client to go to the police first, Mr. Fitzhugh. This is nothing that a small-time P.I. should be involved with. Reisner put his coffee cup down on my desk, right on the stack of today's phone messages. I'll be in touch. I sank into my office chair, and the door hissed shut. This was not going to be a good day, even if Mary Margaret was off. I was in the middle of a bigger mess than I thought. 
all because my mother told somebody I'd take a case for free. I leaned back and considered what I was facing. My former fiancé was a rogue FBI agent looking to kill the man who shot her husband, or looking to shoot him because he could hang her for accidentally killing her husband, according to her boss. The man who may have killed her husband is the same man who convinced my assistant's grandmother she was some sort of nun in Jesus' personal checkbook. To top it off, I just dropped a man into the center of that abbey, surrounded by FBI agents, to get information for me in some sort of ruse that I could get fraud charges dismissed or reduced. There's a priest the cops think died of a heart attack, who I'm convinced was murdered, and my assistant's mother was listening to my mother, who convinced her I would be able to fix everything for free, including a pro bono hostage rescue. If St. Giles got wind, he was surrounded by the feds and pulled a gun. And thanks to Fiona, Mary Margaret, and me, he was already on edge. Slocum and Eileen O'Connor would be killed, or at least find themselves cowering underneath the kitchen table together as bullets flew over their head. Holy mother of God, what the hell am I going to do now? Reisner was right. I needed to divest myself from this case, and fast. I needed to come clean with Barnes. I needed to tell Bridget Cleary she needed an attorney and to get law enforcement and whoever else involved with this situation, anybody but me. I wasn't meant to take on these cases. I was supposed to be tailing unfaithful spouses and looking into insurance fraud. I should be taking what Alicia Linderman shoved my way, grabbing easy video of dumbasses like Slocum who thought they could get away with fleecing the great state of Ohio, turning it into her and cashing the check. I wanted to serve the occasional subpoena, knock on hotel room doors, and tell errant husbands that they were caught. I wanted to sit in bars, like I'd been doing just a few days ago, and watch drunken cancer doctors put 20s in strippers' G-strings as their patients lie dying. I wanted boredom back. I spent the morning working through the phone messages Mary Margaret left me, setting up cases for next week. I'd sit down with Mary Margaret when she got there this afternoon, or even tomorrow, as well as her mother, and let her know the situation had moved beyond my capabilities. For all concerned, it was best that she go to the police or sheriff, somebody other than me. I'd spill my guts to whoever they decided to go to, tell them everything they wanted to know. But what about Fiona? What did I owe her? Not a damn thing if you thought about it. She was the one who showed up here looking to turn my case into something that it didn't need to be. I definitely did her wrong. She may have saved my life, and I definitely did her wrong in our personal relationship. But that was a long, long time ago. I said I was sorry for what I'd done. I didn't need to do more. I didn't need to go down in flames for her. Especially if she was going after Kovach to cover up her mistakes. I'd have to tell her I was out. If she wanted to go get St. Giles, she'd have to do it on her own. From what Reisner told me, she was headed towards career suicide. I wanted no part of that. And what if I couldn't convince Barn that O'Malley had been murdered? So what? I'd been wrong before. It wasn't the first time. Just ask every member of my family, the remaining members of the Fossetville Police Department who remember me, my wife, and one crazed FBI agent. Maybe Barnes was right. I'd been so desperate to erase the ennui that filled my days that I was grasping at whatever dramatic straws I could find. I needed to get Tate Slocum out of the situation I put him into. 
that I had him dead to rights on the workman's compensation fraud through the video I had made, and I never made any kind of deal to lessen the charges Alicia Linderman wanted to file. I had no guarantees that she wouldn't throw the book at him. He'd be pissed. He might even beat the shit out of me, and frankly, I probably deserved it. But shit, he wasn't completely blameless in this whole mess either. He was the one who decided he was going to file a false disability claim. Anyway, odds are, he wouldn't come up with anything useful at the Abbey. Somewhere in there, I also had to talk to Ma, the one that got me into this mess to start with. She wouldn't take it well, but she seldom did like many of the choices I made. She cried when I told her I didn't want to be a priest, cursed roundly in Italian when I got thrown off the KSU football team and discharged from the Air Force. She didn't speak to me for a week after Fiona dumped me. Bringing Gracie into my life seemed to fix things with Ma, though. I did do something right for once. Gracie. I lay back in my chair and stared at the pressed tin ceiling. Hopefully I could get this mess resolved before Gracie came back from Vienna. If I was lucky, I could get this whole damn thing off my hands before her next Skype call, which is supposed to be this weekend. I could dismiss it from her mind with a few sentences and she'd forget about it. We'd be talking about the next case that came along. The next boring case. And speaking of boring cases, the bell atop the office door rang, indicating I had a visitor. Please be a pissed-off wife, a disappointed husband, an unhappy employer. Who is that organizing the magazines on the coffee table in my waiting room? She was well-dressed, cute even, in an accordion-pleated navy skirt and a lacy white blouse that accentuated her figure. I caught a glimpse of a lacy bra that pushed her small breasts up as she stacked the magazines. Her hair was strawberry blonde, shot through with gold highlights, stylishly cut and curled. Her sensible heels were navy blue with white spots and matched the bag that sat on the desk. Can I help you? I asked. She smiled, exposing her crooked teeth. I realized that the glasses were gone as well, and Mary Margaret's nearsighted eyes were ringed for the first time ever with mascara. Hi, Mr. Fitzhugh. How do I look? This episode is narrated by Casey Martin. Fracktown Gumshoe is based on the novels by Deborah Gaskill.